0: To CrossPoint Church's Weekly Sermon Audio from Lead Pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about CrossPoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. All right, good morning everybody. How are we? Good to see you. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors. Glad you're here. Let's get to it. Mark chapter 12. We're finishing up Mark Chapter 12 today, the last seven or eight verses. As you're finding Mark chapter 12, let me mention to you that if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use the one in the rack, in the chair in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you, and, and you're welcome to keep that Bible if you don't own a Bible. You're welcome to keep that Bible as our gift to you. I think you'd be really helped if you followed along with me, and one of the ways that I learned the Bible, where books were, was just by opening the Bible up during Uh, The message that was preached at the church I was going to as a young Christian and then opening it up and reading it on my own. And when I was at Bible studies with other Christians, actually having my Bible uh, with me. In fact, young men, there's nothing more masculine and attractive than a young man, not to me, but to, to, than a young man with his Bible open who then also occasionally works in the nursery. That's just a beautiful combination of humble, Christ like masculinity right there. So I don't know where that came from. Just put that in your pipe and smoke it. All right, here we go. I don't condone smoking. It's bad for you, but come on. It's a phrase. All right, Mark chapter 12. Now, as you're opening to Mark chapter 12, a couple things. First of all, um, I love the 4th of July. I just, I grew up right on the edge of America and Mexico. And um, I love Mexico too, it's my second favorite country, no actually third favorite country behind Italy, the country of my, my father's forefathers. But growing up there just gave me a great appreciation for the land that we live in and God's grace and providence that he's given us as, as Americans. And then coming here 20 years ago as a young soldier at Fort Benning has given me a great appreciation for our military and for our are soldiers that we have the great privilege to minister to here at Crosspoint. Now, it's a four-day training holiday for a lot of our soldiers that are part of Crosspoint, so probably a lot of them are gone. But listen, if you have been in the military in the past, even if it was like the Navy or the Air Force, or if you are currently serving in the Army, um, just raise your hand. We are, in fact, stand up. Come on, we're going to do it. Stand up. Come on. We want to give you honor. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah! Praise God. Praise God. We, we thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and uh, we're grateful for the sacrifices that, that you make. And even now, there are um, young soldiers from Cross Point that, that have been here through the past years and are deployed in harm's way in dangerous places primarily in Afghanistan doing very dangerous things. And so we want to remember them and pray for them. And then secondly, before we get into the message, I want to mention, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, that next Sunday we're going to take a break out of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at an issue that is very hot and and, and, uh, very controversial in our culture today, the issue of homosexuality and what the Bible and what Christianity says to that, what the what the gospel, the hope that it holds out for all sin, not just homosexuality. And so we're going to look at the gospel and homosexuality and what a Christian's response and posture should be towards homosexuality. We're going to look at it next Sunday. And let me just state right up front that that uh, I believe, the pastors and elders of this church believe and stand with the Bible, that we believe that um, homosexuality is a sin, and that giving yourself over to homosexual practice uh, and giving into that sin is incompatible with, with uh, Christianity. It's incompatible with the Bible. Like all sin is, like heterosexual sin is and like drunkenness and, and all, all manner of sin is incompatible. Unrepentant sin is incompatible with biblical Christianity. But there are people that wrestle with this sin and that are taking God's side against this sin and there is hope and there's salvation in Jesus for the homosexual, for the heterosexual sinner, for the thief, for the idolater, for 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 all of us who are sinners. And so we are going to look at that, what the Bible has to say about sexuality, and then what our response and posture as a church should be. And then on the midweek fellowships that we're doing in July, the last one on July 31st, that Wednesday night, we're gonna, Wayne is going to do a bit of a recap of that teaching briefly, and then we're going to do a question and answer um, time where we'll just you know, open it up to questions uh, for people specifically about that issue of the gospel and homosexuality and, and, and human sexuality in general. So look forward to that. Would love for you to come next week. Would love for you to bring a friend um, because r- really the issue is not just homosexuality. It's really all sin and what the gospel holds out as the great hope. And so I, I think next week will be, I think in, in a lot of ways, a, a, a really a powerful sort of witness to an onlooking world of what, what it means to be a Christian. And I'd love for you to invite a person who's, who's not yet a Christian, or maybe somebody that even is wrestling with that issue. I would love for Crosspoint to be the place where people that are wrestling with all manner of sin can come and be encouraged and be pointed towards Jesus and His restoration. All right, well, let's, let's get into it. Let's, uh, let me, let's go to Mark chapter 12, verse 38, and as you're finding it, um, today we're going to finish... This series of confrontations that we've been seeing Jesus have with the religious authorities. And so just a a broad overview of the Gospel of Mark. The first eight chapters were really a display of Jesus's authority and power over sickness and demons and weather and even death as he raises Jairus's daughter from the grave. And then Uh, Midway through Mark chapter 8, there's a transition that is made when Peter confesses Jesus, and Jesus transitions from a display of his power and authority over all things to teaching. Teaching about the kingdom, teaching about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And then we get into this section where he's riding into Jerusalem uh, on the Passover week, and we are here in Mark chapter 11 through 16 is the last week of his life. The, 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 the last third of the Gospel of Mark is about just Jesus' last week. And as he rides into Jerusalem, immediately he's confronted by the religious authorities. And today we read the, 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 this beautiful contrast where after he's done sort of confronting and answering these questions that were meant to trick him, we see this beautiful contrast of pride and pride of the religious elite, and the humility of this, this poor widow who gives all that she, she had. So I want us to see, really, here. in fact, I'm going to give you the two truths I think that are in this section, even before we read it, is that Jesus rejects the proud, and Jesus receives the humble. Jesus rejects the proud, and Jesus receives the humble. So let me read, and then I'll pray, and we'll, we'll unpack this text. And in his teaching, he said, verse 38, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 41, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Well, let's pray, and ask the Lord to help us think deeply about these words. Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark, for the Bible, for your holy, true inspired word that you wrote through men over centuries and that by your power you have superintended and collected and preserved for us that now as your people thousands of years later can read this word and know you through this word this word is true it's without error and it carries all authority in heaven and on earth. And we pray, Lord, now that we would submit ourselves to its authority. For those in this room that are already trusting in Christ, I pray, Lord, that, that we would see beautiful things in this passage. And that we would be simultaneously convicted and encouraged to see and savor And love Jesus more. And Lord, for my friends that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, and certainly there are some in this room who fall into that category, would you be so kind, Lord, as to give them ears to hear and eyes to see and a new heart so that they might trust and believe and love Jesus and be saved. I pray that you would do this all for your glory and for the good of your people and their eternal joy in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so we're going to unpack this text, and I think really the truths are quite clear and, and simple. then we're going to look at the challenges to this text and living out this text that we face as Americans today, and then, and then some application as to how we can do this better. so I think that what Mark is doing here in, in this short little ending of Mark chapter 12 is he's giving us an intentional contrast between these scribes who seem to make a show out of their religion and this humble widow who puts in a penny into the offering box and is commended by Jesus as, as a model for discipleship. Jesus here is, is, is really wrapping up his teaching of what it means to be a disciple. As I said in, in Mark chapter 8, he transitions from a display of miracles and power and authority into teaching what it means to be a disciple. And here, we, we see sort of the, the summation of that. These, these religious elites, these scribes, as sort of pretentious and pompous and focused on themselves, and this humble widow who you would never suspect as being the model of discipleship is commended again by Jesus as this, as this picture. And So let's look, at, let's look at specifically how Jesus rejects the proud and receives the humble. So, so let's read again in verse 38. He says, Beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So who are the scribes? Just by way of reminder, remember they are the teachers of the Old Testament law. They would have been sort of like the religious lawyers, the, the, the ones that would be tasked with specifically understanding and giving commentary on Old Testament law. And they were more than just sort of you know the preachers, in a sense, or the the expositors of Old Testament law. They really, because Old Testament Jews in in this context here were 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 really a, a theocracy. They're really like the lawyers, in a sense, kind of like the mayors, the judges, the deciders. They're, they have a, a tremendous amount of authority in the culture, and and they Jesus is critiquing them because this authority that they've been invested in as scribes, as teachers. They, they like it. We see there that they, just a few things, they want to be seen. They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces. And Jesus rejects this spirit of kind of wanting people to see just kind of how, how powerful and how knowledgeable in your, your position. Not only did they want to be seen, they, they wanted power. Verse 39 says that they wanted the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts which would designate a person of authority or power, and it was very important for them to, to have a seat of honor. They wanted not just to be seen, but they wanted power, and they wanted riches. That little strange word, or that phrase there in verse 40, where it says that they devour widows' houses, is, is really getting at the fact that these scribes were greedy for financial gain. In their role as teachers and interpreters of the Old Testament, they were sort of oftentimes legal guardians of the estates of widows. And they would also give not only financial but legal advice. And Jesus is alluding to the fact that it was a common practice and well-known amongst the Jews that oftentimes these scribes would be corrupt in their execution of their management of the financial affairs of widows. And would, would, would sort of prey upon these widows who they knew had money and would offer them sort of maybe religious services or long prayers or something. Or would give them bad advice or would, would promise them maybe blessing if they gave to the treasury. Kind of like the modern day prosperity gospels. I mean, we see it all the way. Like, they didn't have TBN back then beaming through satellites. But, I mean, if they did, these cats probably would have had their own show. And Jesus is is rejecting their desire to be seen, their desire for power, and their desire for riches. Contrast that now with this this humble widow. It says that in verse 42, that a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. So... Think about that, just this, this I mean, one, I, I was reading it, one 128th one of uh, of a day's wage, just this penny. I mean, stuff that we throw into, you know, wishing wells. I, I grew up as a kid by a railroad track, and I remember we would take, just to drive my mom crazy, and I can imagine now as a parent thinking, oh my gosh, my child wandering around on a railroad track. But we would take pennies, and we would put them on the railroad track and tape it there, For the train to run it over because it was just a great prize to have a flattened penny. I mean, come on, as a kid, as like an eight-year-old, you could sell that penny for like, you know, a dollar. And it's just a a throwaway thing. And and this penny is all that this lady had. And Jesus commends her. He commends her because this penny really represented all that she had. and, And it represented her heart. And he says about this poor, humble widow's contribution, just notice this, I mean, I think it's just clear, the contrast, that her giving of this penny amounted to more than these rich people who in verse 41 were giving these large sums, but were giving it sort of out of their their abundance. You know, kind of like these... Hollywood stars that throw these benefit concerts or host these lavish parties in Hollywood, and they spend $5 million for the concert or the party, and they raise $50,000 for a relief effort. In a sense, that's kind of what's happening here. They have much more, but they're sort of making making themselves feel good about themselves by giving away just kind of, you know, a skim it off the top while they spend lavishly on themselves. So I think the truths are clear in this text, that Jesus is rejecting the proud, and he's receiving the humble. And this is a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. So, now let's look at some challenges to being a humble disciple like this woman. Is Some challenges in our culture, in our context, as Americans living in 2013, what are some challenges to humble discipleship that this widow personifies and that Jesus receives and celebrates? First, is that we live in a culture of self-promotion. Are you aware, oftentimes I'm not aware of it in my own life, But do we realize the effect that social media has had on us? I mean, let's just take, all right, everybody just take your shoes off, stick your toes out, because I'm going to step on all of them right now, even mine. I'm just going to trample all over them. And if you're upset, you can just email me at robert at (laughs) insidecrosspoint.com. But take, take, take a moment to think about really the idolatry of social media. So let's just think about Facebook for a second. And it it does two things. First of all, it's like we almost as our default are programmed to project the best, most presentable parts about us. There, There really aren't a true picture of who we are. Isn't that just a temptation? Isn't it? And so we're spending all of this time sort of projecting this veneer that's really not truly who we are to our friends, who maybe we haven't even met in person, and then we're simultaneously jealous and resentful of the people whose kids are cuter or whose vacation is longer longer or, or whose whatever just seems a little bit more shiny. And then, because regular pictures just aren't enough, we've got this thing called Instagram, which makes pictures seem even more cool and nostalgic. You know what I'm talking about? If you're over 40, don't worry about it, you're missing nothing. <laughs> but if you take a little picture in this app called Instagram, you have about 15 options to make your Picture even a little bit prettier and cooler and more nostalgic with a little bit more shine. Now, full disclosure, friends, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook and I even have a Twitter account. (laughs) And I think those things can be used to the glory of God. But do we (laughs) say amen? But do we realize the idols that lurk behind American culture? And and so so none of us are going to dress up on a Sunday morning in long robes and kind of hover around the front looking at who greets us and whether the, you know, the elite amongst the church come and say hi to us, which, thank God, we don't have that type of atmosphere here. But let's not, let's not dismiss this from our lives too quickly because don't we sort of do that in the, in the cyber world where, where we, we just crave attention and self-promotion And in a sense, electronically or in other venues of our life, maybe not in worship, maybe not in the marketplace, we walk around in our sort of proverbial long robes and light greetings in the marketplaces or hits on our Facebook or whatever it is. And it is an idol. And... It is self-deceiving. And it really, it really confines us into a sort of prison because we make an idol out of image. It makes us prisoners to other people's opinion. And I actually think it's deadly for a Christian community if we're not careful, if we don't see through it and, and reject the brokenness of it. Because what happens is, is when we end up comparing ourselves to other people, we end up comparing maybe even our houses to other people, and, and we, we just watch things like HGTV or all these decorating shows and we, you know, Pinterest and all these things is that we think, oh my gosh, my stuff, my little sliver of the world is not attractive. And so therefore, I can't invite people, I can't open up my home because my home's a mess. Let's just call it, let's just call it right now, let's just establish a rule in Crosspoint in our culture. Our houses are a wreck. Okay, that's fine. Your house is dirty, so what? Invite people over. Our house is a wreck, not because my wife is not a wonderful person at arranging the house, but because we have four children that are like a horde of locusts. (laughs) And rather than guarding real life from you guys, you know, why don't we just get into this mode where, yeah, here, just come on over. Just come on over. You know, my house isn't Instagrammable. My kid doesn't always behave. I am not living in a continual state of just having a healthy meal and getting done with a wonderful workout. That's life. Come on over. Let me share what I have with you. It's rugged, sometimes it's ugly, Sometimes they're slobber. Sometimes the dog throws up on the carpet. Sometimes they're arterios ground into the couch. <laughs> Welcome to real life. So, so we live in a culture of self-promotion. And friends, this is all pride and pretentiousness just like the scribes, is it not? That's the first challenge to humble discipleship. The second that I see and that I have just spent a week thinking about in my own life and in the life of this church is a great challenge to us is that we live in a culture of abundant resources and options. See, so here's another challenge. We're going to look at the scribes and say, well, I don't walk around in fancy clothes in the marketplace, so that's not me. And then we look at verse forty-one, where it says that these rich people put in large sums of money, and then this poor widow came along and put in a penny. And so Jesus commends her and rejects the, you know, criticizes the, the the giving only out of abundance. But I I'm not really rich. I'm a pretty middle-class guy, so you know this doesn't apply to me. And if we're careful, we can read ourselves out of the admonitions and the imperatives of Scripture. But friends, let me just say this: that the vast majority of in this of us in this room if not all of us, financially I think fall into that category of really being wealthy people. And we live in a culture of abundant resources which in a lot of ways can be used as a blessing but as another way actually straps us down and gives us so many options that we become people that are always searching for the best thing or the next vacation or the next little toy or the thing I can buy. And what it does is it causes our heart to be tied to things that we can acquire rather than a God who we must love and enjoy forever. Listen to Paul's words to to the rich. And don't, don't just think right now. Do not make the mistake of thinking about the rich person that you know that comes to Point, who's probably away on a vacation right now because they've got a house somewhere and you think, oh, I wish they were here to hear this. Don't make that mistake. Read this. I mean, let these words settle on us. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. Chapter 6, of First Timothy, chapter 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And so you think well maybe I don't, you know, I don't desire to be rich but but don't we all have to fight that desire for more like more stuff? Like if I only had this then I would be happy. I think that desire to be rich applies to every human heart that wants the next level of whatever it is that then will make you happy. And when you put your hope in that next thing, friends, and we all are so prone to that, then that becomes an idol because only Jesus can truly satisfy us. And then he goes on. Go chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Skip all the way to verse 17 there. And he says this. Listen to these words. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy they are to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life so I want to, I want to mention a couple things about, about riches about, about actual financial wealth is that the Bible does not condemn it sort of, you know, just in and of itself. In fact, w- w- Paul tells Timothy there that those that are rich should, should use their riches as a way of doing good, as a way of blessing, as a way of investing in the kingdom, as a way of giving their riches away for the good of others. And so the Bible does not write, outright condemn wealth. It condemns the idol that lurks behind wealth. So, so uh, a couple questions that we need to ask ourselves. Am I, like what Paul is talking about here, desiring riches? And here's the problem I see in, in my life and, and quite frankly in the life of, of people in our culture and people in our church, is that their, their wealth, as I mentioned earlier, has given us so many options that the last decision we always make is Jesus and his people. And so so we, we make decisions. We make decisions with our time based on what we can do. And it seems like the last priority is always spending time with Jesus and his people because we've got all this other stuff that we can do because we've got these resources. And so we go off and do this, and we go off and do that, and we buy this, and we buy that, and we do, and we do this. And we sort of, we sort of build a, our, our life with trinkets and options that, that, that at the end of the day, it crowds out just the simple, humble life of discipleship that, that Jesus commends Do you have too many options? And are you jealous about people that have options because of their wealth? Friends, riches can be used as a great blessing, but they can also be a a curse. In fact, I think God uses them as, as really just giving some people over to their depravity. And so if you're rich, If you have a lot of options, let let your heart be searched by the Holy Spirit. If you're jealous of those that have riches, (laughs) repent. And thank God that that obstacle oftentimes of riches isn't really an option for you. And you have to settle, but you're not really settling for the regular means of grace that God gives. That's a blessing, friends. That's a blessing. So those are two challenges to humble discipleship. Let me end this with a few thoughts about how we can pursue humble discipleship, which is modeled by this this widow. How do we pursue this? I can imagine a businessman who works for Aflac or Synovus or a uh, young soldier, maybe an NCO, squad leader, platoon leader. You're saying, okay, Brad, I get this. I'm convicted sufficiently. Thank you for moving on. That was uncomfortable. But it's not practical. What am I supposed to do? I can't just go in and crumble and confess my idolatry and all this and my, my inadequacies, you know, and just say, I'm, I'm a jerk to my boss, you know. Can't just do. I've got kids to put through college. I've got stuff to do. I mean, okay, I get it. But 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 how does this practically work out in my life? What are some things that I can do to pursue humble discipleship? Well, uh, five things, very quickly. Number one, repent of pride and self reliance. This is one thing I love about the gospel. Love about the Bible is the answer is always repent. (laughs) That's just like it just it always applies. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer in the 1500s, when he started the Protestant Reformation, listed 95 things, 95 theses or refutations of, of the Catholic teaching at the time. And one of the first one that he put was that repentance isn't just the beginning of the Christian life, it's the whole of the Christian life. And so to be a Christian, to be a biblical Christian, is to be a person that repents continually of our pride, of our self-reliance. And this is wonderful news. It's wonderful news. So so we read this and we may find ourselves actually being more like the scribes than we thought and maybe more like the rich people than we thought when we first read it. And that should not produce in us despair. It should lift our eyes so that we look to Jesus who receives the humble, who receives the person who repents of their pride and their self-reliance. You see, there's, there's no need to stay in pride. There's no need to, to continue to be rejected by Jesus when he offers us the pathway of repentance to come and stop trusting in our riches, stop trusting in our own righteousness, and look to Jesus. And friends, friends isn't that the gospel? That's what the gospel is, is that we're not saved by our works, we're not saved by anything we can do, or anything we can buy, or any status that we can have, or how much we can give, or how gifted we are, or not. We are saved by Jesus, and in fact, friends, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to not trust in yourself, to recognize that you have nothing in and of yourselves that can make you right before God, that you, like every other person in the world, has sinned, and because of our sin, we have separated from ourselves from God hopelessly, without hope. There's nothing we can do. We're completely unable to make ourselves right with God. But to be a Christian and to trust in Christ means that we look away from our inability and we look to Jesus. We look to Him, and when we look to Him, we're repenting of self, trusting in ourselves, and we're having faith in what Jesus has done in His perfect, sinless life as the only hope for our right standing with God. Friends, that's the gospel and that's, that's the continual first step of what it means to be a humble disciple of Jesus. Repent of pride and, and self-reliance. Secondly, take an inventory of your, of your treasures, of your stuff. In our discussion guide that that uh, Wayne and Robert put together weekly for our community groups. They came up with an excellent set of questions. And if you're not used to picking up this discussion guide or if you're not in a community group, I would love for you to get involved in one. I'm going to talk a little bit about that here at the end. But there's these discussion guides that are really just a Bible study written on the text every Sunday. They're excellent tools for just personal Bible study, for getting in a community group, doing life with other people in the church. In fact, I would, I would say that it's more for living in community, not just your own personal benefit. But listen to these questions that speak to our time and our money. Question, have I spent much of my time and money on clothes and home furnishings? If so, perhaps what matters most to me then is outward appearance. Have I spent much of my time and money on music, movies, or going out, or Whatever. Perhaps, if so, then what matters most to me is being entertained. Have I carefully saved much of my money or planned ways to save more of it? Well, nope. then maybe, perhaps, what matters most to me is security and comfort. And friends, these are not, this isn't to say that we shouldn't go out or that we shouldn't buy clothes or buy home furnishings or that we shouldn't have a retirement account. But do you see the fine, often subtle line is that sometimes we, we let these things sort of rip our hearts and we become much more like these rich people in verse 41 than this, this humble, dependent widow. So take an inventory of your treasures. Is your heart in treasure on this earth that Jesus says moth and rust will destroy? Or is your treasure in heaven, which will last forever? Three, take an inventory of your time what is your priority in life what what garners most of your time is it recreation is it physical fitness is it some hobby is it work it's not to say that when we look at our schedule that there aren't righteous expenditures of our time I and mean, when we have to go to work And it's a good thing to exercise. And it's a good thing to do hobbies or whatever. But if all of our time, if continually we are making decisions that crowd out time with Jesus and his people, maybe we are more like these scribes and rich people than we are this humble, dependent widow. So take an inventory of of your time. Fourth, take an inventory of your relationships in your friendships. Is everybody that's closest to you like you? Are they the same demographic? Do their kids go to the same school? And do they live in the same neighborhood? Take an inventory of that. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. In fact, that can be wonderful. But it can also cause us to live a sort of insulated life where we then subtly are much more likely to be like these scribes than we are this humble widow. Take an inventory of your relationships and think about the beautiful grace that God gives us in being with people that are not like us or that can't actually give us anything. Which leads me to the fifth and final thought about pursuing humble discipleship. Submit your life to Jesus' good authority and to his community. So Jesus has given us a a ready-made means of grace to combat the idolatry of pride, to combat... The, the selfishness and, and the, the desire for riches that, that rests in all of us. He's given us his word and his people. He's given us the local church and friends that is why life and commitment to a local church like Crosspoint is so vital in the, in the life of every person who considers himself to be a Christian. That's why we take membership seriously here. That's why we take community groups seriously here. That's why we urge you, if you are sort of on the fringes of life at Crosspoint, to sort of move closer to the center and maybe find a group of people through a community group or a Bible study or or, or just, just a group of people that you can do life with so that you are known. It is so vital because here's what happens, is that in the local church, Jesus forces us to be around people that are not like us for our good And he forces us to deal with each other's sin and the reality of each other's lives in a way that oftentimes can be frustrating, but that in and of itself becomes a means of grace by which God sanctifies us and humbles us and makes us more like him. Listen to uh, some, some words out of our church covenant as a church that we read together every one another meeting, which is on our website, which is what we live by as a church. This is our church covenant, just a few lines from it. It says, having been brought together by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, resolve to live by faith and to establish this covenant with one another. In all we do, we will aim to glorify and enjoy the God of our salvation, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To Him be glory forever. We will eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by walking together Knowing each other, like in love, you know, inviting one another over to our house, spending more than 90 minutes together on a Sunday morning, rich and poor, black and white, Latino, Asian, all these different types of people, this neighborhood, that neighborhood, walking together in love, a group of people who would never ordinarily hang together, hanging together in this beautiful sort of Jesus community by walking together in love and in the Spirit and by putting away all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. And listen to these lines. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing one another when necessary. And we will carry each other's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Our friends, we fail in all of those things regularly, weekly, daily. But do you see this beautiful picture that, that God gives us in the local church to strive for? That there's a place where I can let down my veneer of pride. And there's a place where a group of people know me truly, a group of people that know that my marriage isn't perfect, that my children are not perfect, that my own sanctification is rugged and very much in process, but a group of people who are just the same. You know, they've got their issues too. And we all together are not expending energy on putting this sort of pretense for public display, but we're letting it down and we're looking to Jesus rather than to each other's Facebook page or Instagram pictures as the defining reality in life and we're looking to Jesus and his beauty and his satisfaction and his perfection and together we're like linking arms and we're saying, let's go, let's go to that, let's go to that. Friends, do you realize how beautiful, how lovely, And how fulfilling and satisfying that is. And it depends whether or not that's achieved. It depends on whether a group of people are willing to crucify and be honest and look at their own hearts and say, I'm I'm like that scribe and that rich person in this area. And I repent of that. And I look to Jesus. So that I might, along with this other group of dusty, pardoned rebels, be like that widow who offer everything we have to follow and serve Jesus. And friends, living like that in that type of community, oh, it's so much better. It is so much better than anything this world can buy, any hobby, any recreation, any, any trinket. It's so much better when we live together like that. And that's what this contrast at the end of Mark chapter 12 is pointing us towards. Are you a follower of Jesus? If you are, like me, before we receive communion together as a church family, let us examine our hearts. Let us examine the areas where we may be like the scribes and these rich people. Repent and look to Jesus. Are you not yet a follower of Jesus? Friends, you too must look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Even now, look to Jesus and trust in Him. Do not require perfect faith from yourself. Look to a perfect Savior who, because of His perfection, saves you not because of your absence of doubt. Look to him even now and trust in him. In just a moment, we're going to receive communion as a church family. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come to this table and receive this bread which represents his broken body for us and this juice which represents his blood that was spilled for us and washes us as white as snow. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'd ask you not to partake of this meal, not because we're trying to embarrass you or exclude you, but because we wouldn't want you to proclaim something that you truly don't believe yet. Because when we come to this table, when we receive this bread and we receive this juice, we are proclaiming that Jesus has died for us. And then he took our sin, and then he bore it, and he extinguished the punishment for our sin, and he removed it, and he satisfied God's holiness. And then he rose again in victory over sin and death and all of its consequences. And if you don't yet believe that, we wouldn't want you to falsely proclaim that. But we're very glad you're here. We want you to come back and we pray that God might give you a heart to trust in him. And if if he's doing that right now, even for the first time, and you're realizing, I love Jesus, I, I need to trust in Jesus. Friend, then look to him, love and trust in Jesus. And come to this table with us and proclaim Jesus' work to save sinners. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to the table, and as these brothers prepare to serve us, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be honest with ourselves and each other, to take an inventory of our hearts To confess that we are so prone to idols, that we are so given to the options of the abundance of our culture, that oftentimes subtly these things draw our hearts away from you. Would you, in your kindness, Lord, would you give us the blessedness of realizing that Jesus and his people are all that we truly need? would we repent of our self-reliance and idolatry and would we look to and long for Jesus and as a church would we long for the community and the life together that you call us to and would we remember that as we receive these elements today remembering that Jesus laid down his life on a cross to bear our sin and rose again in victory over that grave. May we remember this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.